So hello and welcome to the Failure to Launch podcast, the podcast where we take you through all of the failures, mistakes, and explosions that make modern space exploration possible. I'm Quinn. I'm Chris. I'm other Chris. Yeah, so let it let it never be said that I don't listen to feedback, uh, and we here don't uh, hear all of the... Uh, yeah, like, that we don't hear everything from our, our good sixes of fans... And in order to redress, yeah, exactly. Well, we got, everyone has to start off small, you know, that's how you build a good success story. Long story short, more Chris. More Chris per Chris. Exactly. You twice as much Chris per podcast. What other podcast can you point to? I'm sure there's other podcasts. I'm sure there's podcasts that are nothing but Chris and that's their entire gimmick. Oh, that's chaos right there. Fuck. Why didn't we make that? Uh, we must find more. So, other Chris, a new Chris. You've heard of Sputnik, right? I've heard of Sputnik. Okay, yeah. And, and who has, a... like, it's a beepy, shiny ball that got launched by the Soviets, kicked off the space race. You know, the the star, the starting shot in a new era of human development and engineering and science and conquering the stars. And what if I told you, and what I want to tell everyone in the audience going forward is just, what if I told you that it was a trash fire from start to finish, started for all the wrong reasons, launched for all the wrong reasons, and designed as a poor concession that made no one happy? Sounds like a true government story. Yes. Like, like we talked about before, this is, like I, this is a big story. I'd originally planned to just do this in a whole marathon, but I thought it'd be easier... And, you know, be- better for, better to keep it concise as different little multi-part episodes. So what we're going to be going over in the next few weeks is right here, we're going to be talking about why Sputnik happened and how it happened, like the political, economic, uh, and military reasons that made this blinky ball get launched. Um, we have Act 1, the coal, the garbage fire. Exactly. Second act uh, is going to be the actual development and launch of Sputnik itself, and it even comes with a great Act 2 twist. And Act 3 is going to be what the world came to know as Sputnik Panic, and just how everybody reacted to this. But I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself there. So without further ado, I would like to introduce to you the three reasons that Sputnik happened. So we're we're actually going to have to so to start this off we're going to go back to a little thing you might have heard of called the Cold War, specifically the uh, the mid to late 1950s. You know you know the general situation back then, right? A minor geopolitical spat between the two largest powers in the world. Exactly. Um, except here's the thing: back then it wasn't really viewed as an even struggle. Like the USSR was not viewed as anywhere close to being a threat to the U.S. and the U.S. and NATO, uh, especially under Eisenhower. So you've got you've got Eisenhower in office. You have the the fucking Dulles brothers heading up the CIA and the State Department, um, and you have you have an entire military full of like cigar chomping stereotypical generals who want you know who are dedicated to rolling back communism as much as possible ready to kick the door down just not quite there yet yeah and and they they believe in an active policy of 
pestering and circling and like preventing the Soviets from like, th- this is the same kind of stuff that eventually leads to the, uh, the domino policy, which is where they have, they have to prevent the spread of communism at all costs because if it happens once, it'll happen again and it'll spread and it'll spread and it'll take over the world and all that stuff. It's um, like a fucked up geopolitical version of the broken window theory. Broken window theory. I actually haven't heard of that. What is that? So goes. I'm turning it around on you. I wasn't ready for this. Pressure's on. Don't worry. I might really cut it. I might on. cut it if you fuck off. If you fuck up. It, <laughs> no, it's. It has to do with the fact of it's a theory in policing that if you allow any crime to be seen to exist, more crime will be drawn. So, like a broken window on a storefront, more windows signals will be broken. that. Yes. Okay. So, so it's like a broken. I guess. I guess that's a pretty good comparison then, because like the the U.S. and NATO at the time they view they view the USSR as a broken window, and they worry that that's gonna like spread that that crime of communism, quote unquote, is gonna spread all throughout the world. Other countries would see it and go, "Wow, this looks to be working. We should embrace some policies like that." And they're looking at stuff like that happening in, uh, like, North Korea. China at this time is very much a junior partner to the USSR. Uh, like, you know, the the, the USSR mm-hmm. to the small amount of the world that is communist is like the, you know, the beacon on the hill. Uh, and that's why the US goes out of its way to, like, contain and threaten the USSR as much as possible. So it was kind of a long segue back to the first reason why Sputnik happens. And that is the utterly complete bomber dominance that the U.S. has over the USSR at the time. As you can see from this map here, the US, like U.S. allies pretty well encircle a good chunk of the Soviet Union. And, this, and the U.S. mainland itself is, you know, all the way over on the other side of the Arctic. So in the U.S. at the time, you have something called uh, Strategic Air Command, or SAC. And it's led by, like, look at that picture. Like, literally what I was saying before, like the stereotypical cigar-chomping general. Um, and the U S like they, at the time they have a stellar fleet of bombers. Oh, they, they have an amazing fleet of bombers to, to give you a bit of an idea. I'm going to quote from, and and through, through a lot of these episodes, I'm going to be, uh, quoting from a very good book called red moon rising. that just goes into the entire early history of space from like operation paperclip all the way to, um, the U.S. launching its first satellite. Um, But anyway, from Red Moon Rising, by 1955, the United States had amassed 2,280 atomic and thermonuclear bombs, a tenfold increase from 1951, representing an arsenal nearly 20 times greater than the Soviet stockpile. Meanwhile, billions of dollars were being poured into an armada of heavy long-range bombers to deliver those nuclear payloads. By 1956, the Air Force bomber fleet had almost doubled in size, and Strategic Air Command kept a third of its 1,200 B-47 long-range bombers on the runway at all times, fueled and loaded with their nuclear cargo. So, critically, like at, at this time, the U.S. has, you know, they they have a massive numbers lead. They have a nuclear, like they have far more nukes than the Soviets, and they have much more advanced bombers. As we saw in that quote, this is a time when the B-36 and the B-47s are in service. And like 1955 is also exactly like the B-52 is coming online and the Air Force is ordering thousands of them. And these are like set to soon replace the older bombers. 
the the B thirty six, the B fifty eight, and the B forty seven. These are all based in European and uh, Asian bases. You know, they're based in Turkey, Germany, uh, Italy, France, and Britain, and they can cover basically all of the USSR. Oh, and um, even if those bases in Europe were lost, those planes still had the capacity to fly over Alaska into Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could wipe out and, the eastern naval bases and just keep steamrolling through. And, and that's also kind of, it's kind of a moot point because at the same time the B fifty two is coming online, and the U.S. suddenly has the capability in this bomber to fly from the U.S. mainland and hit pretty much anywhere in the USSR. To kind of paint a contrast. This, what you're seeing right now, was the main Soviet bomber at the time, and they had very few of them. Uh, this is the Tupolev 4 Bull, which, as you can probably see, is a almost direct knockoff of the you know, World War II era B-29. Oh, it actually is uh, a part-for-part copy of a B-29. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it literally is. They, they later made a slightly upgraded version, but like most of what they had was Lend-Lease stuff. Uh, Lend-Lease stuff and like... The U.S. gave them the designs uh, whenever they were, uh, I believe, still fighting the Japanese. I believe, uh, actually, uh, funny enough, uh, we we refused to give those to the Russians, those planes, because we saw them as such an advantage. And the reason they were able to start producing them in the first place is uh, on a couple missions over Japan. I could be wrong here. But they actually had to crash land, or rather emergency land, in Russia. And after that, the planes were impounded air quotes being very uh, necessary for that statement yeah, it's a it's a long tradition because to... i can i can think of a whole bunch of like um fox bat mig 21s so it's a, it's a proud aerospace for... tradition to impound an aircraft take it apart put it back together give it back or to provide um, a nice cash reward for their yeah for feature uh, i'm a, so, i'm certainly no expert on the subject but i do second uh, other Chris in that I believe that is correct. I believe that was a thing that did in fact happen. Um, <clears throat> because this was, uh, if I'm not saying it was the B-17 or the B-29, I think it was a B-29, was the most advanced, or not most advanced, most expensive weapons project in the U.S. Up really? Until, well, the three five. Oh yes, the amount of industry that went into that plane is absolutely astonishing. Holy. Suffice to say, by 1956, despite all of its many wonderful uh, qualities, it was showing its age, especially in an era when the B-52 was coming online. Um, and a piston bomber can't go that far in the in that age. Exactly. So at, at a time when the U.S. can like complete like something else. Something else to note here is that in in January 1956, like LeMay and all of these other figures in the U.S. are like focused on antagonizing the Soviets at every possible opportunity. And LeMay, in in January 1956, scrambles literally almost all of his bombers in a massive simulated attack that flies like several hundred miles into Soviet territory. So, you know, with the Soviets with basically no way of responding themselves, like Soviet citizens are able to look up and see flights of American bombers with big stars and nuclear symbols on their wings, like just flying unmolested over soviet airspace like that is the degree of autonomy that we were able to achieve it sounds going to, absolutely humiliating oh yeah yeah ab- <laughs> absolutely was um so the, the soviets basically they had a very strong need to redress this balance and the first way they tried was trickery and it it didn't really work well 
the Soviets at the time were bringing forward uh, their own prototype bombers, uh, things like the um, the Bison and the Bear. The Bear they was were a... very slow to they were very slow to get going, and ba- even back then, the prototypes had a bad habit of uh, crashing spontaneously. Uh, but that didn't let this that didn't stop the Soviets from trying to trick the Americans into thinking they had more bombers than they did. So. At a couple of air shows where they knew Western uh, observers were present, they took the prototypes and they scrubbed off the ID numbers and they wrote up like deliberately inflated serial numbers on the aircraft. Like, oh, this is bomber number 2 million. And they had the same flights fly over the airport over and over, giving the impression of like hundreds of bombers that the Soviets can just fling at any, any little display. And this backfires horribly. It's unclear whether the Americans actually bought it or if the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, just viewed it as another excuse to get more bombers. But they start ringing the alarm bells and saying the Soviets have more bombers than us and American bomber uh, orders shoot up. Skyrocket. Like they, they skyrocket almost immediately. So the Soviets are suddenly left with like an even bigger uh, discrepancy between them and the U.S. Air Force. That's like... It's a bit of a long-winded way to say, like that is that is the first reason. That is the first big thing driving the Soviets at this time, that their bombers can like the the only way uh, the the B twenty nine knockoff can reach the U S. Like it can kind of hit some parts of Europe, or it can make uh, or it can make single way suicide attacks on the U S. coasts. Like that's that is the only way that they can strike back. And meanwhile, the U.S. Air Force is like flying entire fleets clear over their territory. The Soviets are at an incredible disadvantage at this time, and they're and they need panicking. they need a weapons system to, you know, give them the upper hand. There's also other reasons. So the second reason for why Sputnik happened is actually the USSR's economic situation at the time. So the Soviet economy. Like the, the the Red Army ate up about twenty percent of the Soviet military compared to around like ten percent for the U.S. at the time, and you have to consider that the U.S. economy is way bigger than the Soviet economy. Um, mm-hmm. And, and in, also, in this uh, year, and that was under a war footing, so that was completely yeah. leveraging everything at whatever cost, and then war's over. How can you sustain that? Yeah, you just not to mention can't. in by this time in 1956, um, like 1955, 1956, Soviet citizens are starting to like they know that life is better in other countries. It's not a complete information lockdown. Like they they can see movies, they can look at fashions and wealth in the West, and they're starting to rumble in that direction. They're starting to be. You know, like uh, pressure for for more funding for agriculture, for housing. Like Khrushchev, who at this time was pretty new to the job, he wanted to be a big reformer. And one of the ways he was going to do that was by, you know, drastically improving the living conditions of the average Soviet person. And he needed money for that. Nothing happens without it. Well, yeah. Khrushchev is in a tough position because he needs the money in order to fund all of these new uh, social programs. And this also gets us into the third reason for why Sputnik happens, which is Khrushchev himself running his mouth and putting himself in like a horrible situation. Have you ever heard of a little thing called 
on the cult of personality and its consequences. Oh no. I can only guess. So it actually wasn't that bad. It was actually a very good thing for society and humanity in the Soviet Union. It was a very bad thing for Khrushchev in hindsight. So basically Khrushchev, he gives this speech in the fifties where he like Stalin's already dead by this time. He's trying to do some moderate liberalizing of the U of the USSR. And he gives this speech in which he attacks Stalin and he attacks the cult of personality and he attacks like the brutality and the gulags and Beria and all of these other, all of these other things. It's worth mentioning that he was signing off every one of those lists as well at the time, but he tries to position himself as attacking Stalin, which is something that no one in the USSR has done at the time. And he is not, he is definitely not like in a perfectly secured situation either. He's a dictator, but he is not the only power. Whenever he gives this speech, other members of the Politburo, they start coming after him. The speech is initially secret, but news of it gets out. And Stalin was Georgian. And when news of it gets to Georgia, it actually starts riots and like mass demonstrations in the capital. Demonstrations are put down with typical Red Army efficiency. And, and Khrushchev is effectively left holding the bag for a massacre that his speech sparked. So it's never he, a good position to be in. The blood's on his hands, but just not directly. Yeah. And these are the big three reasons why Khrushchev and the rest of the Politburo, they all go to visit this lab of a very uh, savvy engineer who is offering them the wonder weapon that can solve all of their problems before before we get to sputnik in the r7 i think it's important to go over like a very brief history of the soviet rocket program up to this point in in the wake of world war ii yeah the soviets did not get the nazi scientists and they didn't even get a lot of the rockets either Uh, a very unknown part of operation paperclip was that it actually managed to scoop up entire factories worth of actual v2 parts technicians engineers like down to the nuts and bolts Um, whatever could find a deuce and a half was uh spirited away to say exactly but that's not to say that nothing was left behind and the soviets were able to get enough technicians uh and low-level scientists as well as parts to create their own copy so we got right here is the first the, the early series of soviet rockets so the R1, you can see on the left, is a straight-up knockoff of the V2. It follows the design exactly. There are no uh, variations. It's 100% they built it uh, to the German technology. Basically. Yes. Uh, the R2 rocket, which they design after, is kind of a mix of Soviet and German tech. It's an upgraded V2 rocket. It's got much greater range. It's got much greater uh, payload capacity. And we're fine down a whole nine yards. And finally, on the right, you've got the R5 rocket. So this is the first fully Soviet uh, ballistic missile. And, and this is actually, the, this one goes into active service around this time. It's actually the first missile ever to carry a nuclear warhead. And in testing, it's able to fly uh, a couple hundred kilometers and uh, like it hits its target. The nuclear weapon goes off. So with these rockets, they're actually able to threaten a good chunk of Europe but they can't threaten the U.S. So it's a bit of a little interlude on 
the early Soviet rocket program. And like I was saying before, this uh, this engineer, Sergei Korolev, he's he's the head of these early rockets. A whole bunch of other guys are involved, um, men like uh, Valentin Glushko. But Korolev is our main guy. He's because the main he's the person who He's the main force. And as we'll see in a bit, he's the one who can get the politicians to actually listen. Khrushchev drags all of the all of the Politburo out with him to what is then called NII-88, but will eventually gain the name OKV-1, which is the first Soviet missile research division. And they're there for a show. They're there for a sales pitch. Because Korolev has come to them, like I said before, he's come to them and said, my weapon system can solve all of your problems. It will be able to, I have a, I have a new weapon system, it'll be able to threaten the US mainland with nukes, and it'll be much cheaper then, you know, it'll be much cheaper than building huge fleets of bombers. The Soviet leaders, they get to this place, and Korolev is putting on a show. Like, he literally leads them past, like, he does the full curtain reveal, he leads them past models of the R1 rocket, the R2, he's showing off the R5. Like, he shows them a map with the exact range of the rocket from its different bases and what areas they can hit. The R5 can hit England, it can hit France. And one of them asks Korolev if it can be upgraded to hit the U.S. And Korolev flatly just says, no, it can't. It's as developed as it can be. They'd need a new rocket. And that kind of disappoints his guests, but he is able to pivot perfectly into showing them his new rocket. So, so the R-7 is a monster compared to, every, compared to every other rocket at the time. It's easy to look at it, uh, to look at like the current Soyuz launchers in terms of like large rockets like Saturn V, Falcon 9, uh, and things like that. But consider at the time, like, the largest rocket around was the V2. Uh, and the R7 is, like, is truly massive. It's a um, step above. Exactly. It's got, yeah, as you can see in the picture, it's got, like, four side-mounted boosters. It's got five of the world's largest engines powering it. And it's an absolute it will beast. Have, oh, yeah. It will have the capability... Uh, Korolev tells them to put a nuclear warhead anywhere on Earth, making it the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile. And as he pitches this to them, assuming everyone in the room has stars in their eyes, I, I'm, I'm actually going to make a really quick aside for that because, and th this is actually really fun. Korolev knew his mark very, very well. And he knew that, like, of all of the other leaders, some of them were interested, some of them were skeptical. Korolev was presenting to Khrushchev alone because... I, 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 and I don't want this to just boil down to that classic trope of dictators like superweapons. Uh, because, you know, Stalin, Hitler, Saddam, they, they all loved their weird, gaudy mega weapons. Khrushchev oh. is not, he's not that kind of guy. He's not even like an unquestioned dictator at the time. But what he has, and what Korolev knows, is that Khrushchev is legendary in the Soviet Union at the time for greenlighting anything cool. Anything cool and sci-fi. So he's, he is a very easy mark for a savvy engineer or scientist to like wow him with the wonders of the future. And that is what Korolev is like heavily going for in this. He is trying to take Khrushchev for a ride. He is leveraging him as hard as he can. Oh yeah, and he's he's lying through his teeth about everything just so he can get this sale. 
And Khrushchev's probably licking it up considering oh, the last uh, what you're telling us about what happened in Georgia. He needs this. It's, oh yeah, he he needs this, and it's it's worth mentioning that we know the details of this. Like, we know the details of this meeting because Khrushchev brings his son along. Um, oh, God. Yeah, so, so Sergei Khrushchev comes along. Sergei Khrushchev, like, he actually becomes a very well-respected uh, rocket scientist. So, like, Khrushchev is dedicated to making sure that his kids get the education that he didn't get. And it's one of the large reasons why he's so preoccupied with making the USSR seem, you know, modern. Uh, and why he's so wowed by a, a big weapons project like this. He wants the USSR and by extension, his kids to have all of these crazy new cool things. But at the same time, it's not, it's not so one-sided either. The members of the Politburo, they're able to very quickly recognize what the rocket represents. It's like, oh, it's a way of striking back at the U S but it's also a massive PR coup waiting to happen. Cause this is something that no one else on the planet has. This is something that they can brag about. Um, the wonders of, uh, what's called the wonders of the Soviet system at play. It has given us the capacity to build this, thing. Yeah. this spear to strike back at NATO. And like I was saying before, Korolev is really trying to sell this hard, and he makes promises that maybe he shouldn't. He sets like a wildly impractical time frame. He says that his uh, factories will be able to churn them out. Churn um, them out like sausages. Oh, so you heard that quote. It's just from another video. I watched it it just popped up in my head that's khrushchev said like that is that is a khrushchev quote whenever he's unveiling these rockets that they, his factories will be churning them out like sausages but regardless of those situ like regardless of all of that korolev makes his sale he is able to get the green light for the r7 this new wonder weapon that will completely negate all of the american uh, bomber advantages and be you know significantly cheaper than maintaining a huge uh, Soviet military. He clinches it. He convinced Khrushchev is yeah. completely on board. Oh yeah. He is he I, is in full ride or die mode to say. Khrushchev is going for a ride on this man's rocket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. Damn it. <laughs> um Magic All right. Ride. Uh, us, I'm gonna get us back on track with a quote from again the very good Red Moon Rising. From a financial point of view, focusing on missiles made more sense than maintaining a huge standing army or sinking money into giant bomber fleets that rockets would soon render obsolete anyway. And so Khrushchev was betting the farm on Korolev. And this isn't really part of the quote here, but to give you a bit of an idea of how much he's betting the farm on Korolev's rocket, the Soviet Red Army would have its funding cut by 34%. And the Holy the Soviet shit. strategic yeah this is this is the fucking Red Army and Khrushchev gets so wowed by this one little tour that he cuts their funding by a third and he's he's able to leverage this because you know rockets are a lot cheaper there's the initial development but you know you also you can't, stick you it know. you stick it in a silo you stick it in a silo and you wait you don't have to feed a rocket you don't have to train it. And as of then, um, you can't stop the rocket once it's sent. And he increases uh, the strategic attack mission funding by 127%. Korolev firmly has the green light at this point. 
uh, he he has made his pitch. Khrushchev will sign his checks, and he and he also has something. It can't be overstated, or it can't be understated, how much of an advantage knowing Khrushchev is in like the labyrinthine Soviet bureaucracy. Being able to call Khrushchev's phone and just get him to rubber stamp anything you want is like the only way a program really gets done. But there's one last little bit. See, as they're leaving, after he's made his pitch, and all of the members of the Politburo are happy, Korolev goes to them and he offers them a last little tidbit. And he leads them off into a side room. There's a gurney. And on the gurney is something underneath a tarp. Rips it off, and he shows them a satellite. He, yeah, he shows them this satellite, and his guests do not react at all. They, they don't know what it is. They don't know what it's supposed to do. He launches into this whole uh, speech about, you know, since time immemorial, man has sought to uh, conquer the stars. Still, no one cares. No one knows what they're even looking at. And it's here that he really brings across his showmanship. Whenever he notices that Khrushchev isn't really impressed, Korolev tells him that the U.S. is actually just about to launch one. Like, this is a lie, and Korolev knows it, but it's just that little bit. It gets the it gets the members of the Politburo interested, and he tells them that the U.S. is making a wrong step, that they're building one rocket for satellites and one for bombs, where, with his idea, all they have to do is swap out the warhead and put a satellite in. He has taken that man for a ride, Jesus Christ. The more I hear about it. Yeah. So so while his guests were suitably impressed by the R7 uh, and what it could do as a weapon, they didn't care at all when you know Korolev proposed launching his satellite. In the end, the only thing that actually convinced Khrushchev to greenlight this little pet project was like the claim that the US was racing to launch one. He immediately was ready to go. And that beating them into orbit would be a, a huge propaganda victory over capitalism. Just something else to say, hey, we were here first. Exactly. Like, that's that's the thing. Like, they didn't give a damn about the science, even once he explained the thing. But they knew a layup when they saw one. And he was offering them a chance to develop them, like, a super weapon. And then they were going to do some big scientific breakthrough first. The one-two punch. Korolev gets the green light. But he's, he is told that he can only launch a satellite as long as it doesn't interfere with the main mission. That the R-7 is going to be a missile first and a satellite carrier second. Th- th- that, is of- kind of the, that is kind of the end of it. Like he, he weasels in at the last minute. Like he's got them super impressed by all of his rockets. He's showing off this huge model of the R-7. And it's at the last second he just slips in there. Like this is his pet project. This is not a priority in the USSR. Like None of these guys even know what a satellite is. He just, right at the end, he just says, and can I do my thing too? And it works. Like, only because he's able to leverage it as a propaganda ploy. Um, and everyone else in that room. This is after uh, This is after Khrushchev has left, correct? This is while Khrushchev is still there. Like, they are, they are on their way out of the building. Uh, okay, okay, okay. And then he leads them off into a side room. Like, they don't know about this until he, like pulls back the curtain you might notice something this image i'm showing you right now this is what he this is the model that he shows them and it is not the sputnik we got absolutely not this is the this is the ideal sputnik he proposes launching like a fully comprehensive orbital laboratory and on the next episode 
we're going to get into why that didn't happen and why we wound up with a blinky ball full of batteries. <laughs> oh god, I actually can't wait. <laughs>